Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special pandemic edition of the Here We Are podcast. I uh, I just haven't known what to do about all of this and was in a wait and see, and I was stuck in L.A. and and then had to drive and get all the way to Wisconsin, and I've been brainstorming solutions and wasn't sure what all my take on it was and what the best way to approach this was and didn't want to have the same um, uh, information that everyone's hearing everyone everywhere else and so uh, we're, we're going to be doing exploring a lot of different topics and um, I'll, I'll be releasing I've been I've been scheduling a whole bunch I already at the time that I'm recording this which is a, a Sunday night I have um, I think four lined up for the week which we're trying to release immediately uh, just trying to get everything in place to see if I can get the team up to speed and grinding away on editing and getting everything done. Um, I do ask for your patience in both the audio and video quality as I've never done a remote podcast until now and we're trying out a few different methods of, of doing that and a balance between making things easy for my guests and what the highest quality is. So if you have any tips or suggestions yourself, let us know. We're, we're um, exploring a lot of different options. But, uh, so bear with us th- through that. Each, each episode will hopefully be improving in, uh, in quality um, a bit as, as we learn as we go. And um, hopefully this will be um, you know, a pretty uh, smooth-running, um, high-quality product in, in, uh, in a week or two is the plan. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm putting them on YouTube. Going to start doing uh, video podcasts. So that's one added advantage to doing these is you're going to start getting to see, uh, getting to see me and my guests, and getting to see our body language and and facial expressions and that sort of thing. And I, I just, um, I never realized why people would put podcasts on YouTube. And then I realized most people don't watch TV the way that I do. I don't watch TV that often, and when I watch it, I am focused. I want zero distractions. I want to get every line. But then it occurred to me that a lot of people just have the TV on in the background, and they're cooking and doing things around the house. And um, podcasts are great for that. You don't have to watch and see every second. You can just be listening and uh, and pop up and look from time to time. And so, um, so it's an opportunity there that I hadn't realized something that I was depriving you guys of. It also adds layers of complication and costs on my end and everything else. Um, but um, I think it'll ultimately um, this this will only make for a better podcast. And and even when things do go back to um, um, whatever the new normal is going to be, an unquarantined state. Uh, I will hopefully have learned a lot from all of this experience, and and it will only have made the podcast better. I think this is a this is a fine time for people to start getting into and appreciating um, science, and so I'm. I'm excited to be talking with uh, with a bunch of different people from a bunch of different fields and giving you guys a bunch of new perspectives that you don't hear over and over and over again on on the news and some some things to think about for the future as things continue to transition and the human condition uh, potentially changes 
really dramatically. So I appreciate your continued support. If you want to, um, if you want to um, support the the show and the staff that I have working for this, which I pay off of my 95% live touring income, which has uh, completely gone away, you can do things like go to Libro.fm and uh, you can put in offer code here we are to try the first three months for the price of one. That one month will go to me. It's a good way of getting an audiobook, um, uh, starting an audiobook routine in your life. And then in addition to that, um, you will be supporting your local independent bookstore with Libro.fm. They are the only audiobook company that you actually get to pick your bookstore, your independent bookstore, which uh, you know is going to be uh, going through hard times, um, like a lot of businesses, and 50% of the uh, profits go are split um, and go to the independent bookstore. It's downloaded through the bookstore of your choice. It's all tracked that way. And um, so it's a good way to support your community as well. I couldn't encourage it enough in a, um, in a time like this when you have downtime and you can be uh, 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 taking, in, taking in more books and content. Um, so check that out if you like. And again, sorry if, if the audio isn't, uh, isn't uh, up, to, up to snuff. Uh, up to the usual standards. Um, a, a big part of why I've done all of mine in person is because I have uh, top-of-the-line equipment that I've been using to try to get the very best quality for you guys. But uh, in this, in in these circumstances, um, some compromises are are made a little bit. So. Bear with me there, and I, uh, I'll continue to work toward improving it. This conversation is absolutely fantastic, and this book we're going to hear about, Objection, um, Discussed Morality and, and the Law, is one of my favorite science books out there. I, I am not just saying that. I've, uh, I've, I've um, read it, all, and I've listened to it on an audiobook as well. There's very few times in my life that I've I've found the time to read read a book twice, but um, it, this is this is one of the few. So you're going to enjoy this episode, and thank you so much for your support and tuning in. I hope that you can uh, leave some comments. One free thing that you can do is leave some comments on YouTube, give some likes, do some shares, stuff like that. This is all brand new to me, so. Um, so if I can start getting some YouTube views and getting that circulated, that would help me out a bunch. I'm kind of starting from uh, nothing in terms of that right now, as I haven't really cared uh, that much about having having a big digital presence in the past. So that's what you can do to help out your old buddy, Shane. And, um, and with that, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. 
everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is a very special, interesting episode. My name is Shane Moss. I am uh, a, 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 I, in my former life, I was a traveling stand-up comedian back in that old occupation that used to exist. And, uh, and in my travels, I would often look up a scientist to interview for this podcast. I, I've, done, I've been doing this for five and a half years. And they were always only audio, and they were always done uh, on location. And this is the very first ever remote Here We Are podcast, and it's one of my favorite subjects. We're talking today <laughs> with the authors of the book. This is, I just figured out how to do this fancy background, and, and it's uh, not perfect, as you can see. But uh, I'm talking with the authors of the book, Objection. Oh. <laughs> Is it still coming in? <laughs> Discussed morality and the law. I'm talking with Deborah Lieberman and Carlton Patrick. Uh, I had Deb on. Um, so Deb, I had on the, the show a couple years ago. A couple years ago? Maybe. Something like that. Last year? I, Since 2018. Yeah. And <laughs> I was... I. I tried to get you on as well, Carlton. You weren't, uh, I think you're out of town at the time when I was in Miami. I read about, I read the first two chapters of your guys' book and I emailed, I'd never done this before. I emailed Deb immediately and I was like, can we record two podcasts? Because I already have so many more questions than, um, than I, uh, than we're going to have time to ask. And this is such a fascinating book and it's, uh, it's strangely relevant to, um, to the, to the times that are going on right now. I've been trying to, everyone's, um, you know, hearing everything about Corona on a loop on the news. And, uh, I want to show people that there's a whole bunch of different aspects of science and a lot of different takes and angles on every subject. And so I'm, uh, I'm really excited to talk with you guys. So thank you for being here. And, uh, why don't you tell, uh, the listeners a little bit about yourselves? Carlton, you first. Okay, sure. Uh, so, I'm, uh, my name's Carlton Patrick. I'm an assistant professor of legal studies at the University of Central Florida. I worked with Deb in Miami. Deb was my advisor uh, in the PhD program there. And I came to her um, when I was a practicing attorney and I said, uh, I have these ideas about um, why I think evolutionary psychology is valuable for the law. And I'd like to study it. And there isn't really anyone doing this. And would you be game uh, for kind of teaming up and, and taking me under your wing? And she said, sure, uh, and brought me down there. Um, and so I, I got a PhD in psychology uh, under her tutelage there. And now I'm in a legal studies department. Uh, so I teach law-related courses and that sort of thing. But my expertise is in law and psychology, uh, evolutionary analysis of law uh, type questions. Amazing. Uh, Deborah, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Deb Lieberman. I'm an associate professor at the University of Miami in the Department of Psychology. I study a range of topics, including kinship, uh, emotions like disgust, gratitude. Um, I'm interested in, in close relationships and in general how the mind works. Amazing, and uh, and you were also you did you did stand up science. We saw each other recently. I was in Florida in what was that the beginning of February? 
I think right. end of January, I think end, it was, end of, right? End of January doing stand-up science and you were on, you were one of my two uh, academic guests. Um, so I, uh, I guess the best way to get into this is, is lining up some kind of basic principles of this, uh, of what your book is about. So let's see if I can paraphrase. Much of it is, is kind of thinking about how we make moral decisions and the stuff, morality, our value judgments on things, what's good, what's bad in life. These have long evolutionary underpinnings um, that, that go back long before modern humans and um, uh, pre-language, pre these are, these are, built off of mechanisms that for say disgust or rewards that um, that every species has that uh, that humans with all this fancy language stuff and culture are able to um, uh, express in ways that um, uh, that have been kind of co-opted by our um, by our disgust systems is that a um, did I just completely butcher everything? No, no, no. I think that's, um, that's a good way in. Um, you know, we were, our, our areas of expertise made it such that this book was just a very special project. Um, having yeah. been thinking about disgust for a while and Carlton being a legal scholar, it was just, I mean, I feel very fortunate that he came to work with me. Um, and I'm sure the other folks uh, who could have written this book are very sad he didn't come work with them. Um, but it's uh, our particular approach to the book was really trying to outline what is discussed. And we started off thinking about the different functions that discussed evolved to perform. And those are regulating what we eat, who we touch and who we choose as a mate, as a sexual partner. And throughout the book, we start talking about why those are particular problems that our ancestors would have faced. So to take the first one, eating, you know, what counts as something good to eat. We have a system, our food psychology, that tries to evaluate every piece of everything and judges whether it is something good to put in one's mouth. Does it have sugars and salts and proteins? Um, and what kind of cues does it have that kind of indicate whether it's something good to put in your mouth like sugar, salts and proteins? Or does it have cues to toxin presence? Is it possibly poisonous from a plant? Or is it rotten um, and um, potentially harboring microorganisms? And so our food psychology puts all of that together and spits out a value of if it's, you know, seems good to eat, it'll make it seem scrumptious. And if it's not good to eat, it causes us to feel disgust and to make sure that we steer clear of it. And then there's contact psychology, which is kind of what we're all talking about these days. It's not necessarily uh, social avoidance that we're really all talking about. It's contact avoidance, um, mm -hmm. but making sure that, so evolution built into our psychology, a system to make sure we're not touching things that would have communicated disease. Uh, and one of the difficult things today is that you don't necessarily know who has uh, a virus because yeah. they might, that's right, they might not be showing cues to infection and suddenly now, you know, it looks like it, they're safe to come into contact with, but, but no, lo and behold, they're not. But over yeah. our evolutionary I, history, we would have known. Right. Yeah. I, oh, so, so yeah, so most, uh, it's, it's my understanding that, that, basically any 
any sign that maybe something is off in someone be, be, before we before science discovered things like germs evolution was just kind of sort of picking up on these cues in developing these avoidant behaviors for even and, and not exactly in in the most um perfect way either which is like i i had my um i broke my feet um years ago and and had a uh, you know, significant limp from a foot injury and, and stuff for a while. And uh, it, it's, uh, I, I saw some, some research that showed that, you know, if you have some sort of uh, uh, physical defect or anything like that in any way, even a limp, we have a hard time assessing like, is this a genetic thing? Uh, that I need to avoid, or is this just a temporary injury? And there's kind of something in our system that's like a better safe than sorry. Like, well, I better stay away from this limpy guy. I don't, I don't want to catch the limp. Uh, <laughs> well, you could also come out of that as a rock star, right? So the idea is like, look, you know, I survived that like twenty foot fall. <laughs> so, right, right, right. Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, as long as you have the ability to have language and explain it to people, anyway. Or lie, yes. <laughs> or lie. Um, so, so yeah. So, how does this? Um, I, I mean, as I'm thinking about these times now, when just everyone's talking about everything being contagious, and um, you know, when I had you on in the past, Deborah, we we were kind of talking about how how why do we still mate? So, if if we were if our ancestors were skittish sometimes about who exactly are they touching and what diseases they might uh, get. You, you would think that mating would be the most dangerous thing that, uh, that you could do. Um, you know, we're not, we're not even supposed to be touching our faces um, <laughs> right now. We're, <laughs> we're mating, you're touching some very vulnerable, uh, uh, some very vulnerable part, body parts together. So what kind of, what kind of, um, mechanisms had to be built to do that i i know i know evolution has to have like a lot of different there's a lot of competing strategies going on in an organism where sometimes you need to be focused on survival sometimes you need to be focused on reproduction sometimes you need to be focused on social bonding or hierarchy so how how did how did evolution having built a a system to make us make sure that we aren't eating poison or getting infections from sick sick people. How did it still allow for us to um, get down and dirty? To get down and dirty, great. Well, um, I'll take this one. But then after this, you have to start asking Carlton about the law. <laughs> um, uh, all right, so it ends, <laughs> so, um, it ends up that. Once you have a system in place that is um, so, sex obviously is very linked to contagion and being able to avoid people and avoid getting their diseases has to be suspended. And so you can imagine that a system that was already sensitive to pathogens could now downregulate that in favor of some other types of motivations. And so sexual arousal is uh, a zero sum motivational system with sexual disgust. So the more aroused you are, the less disgusted you are, sexually disgusted uh, you tend to be. And so given the proper cues that you have a, a potential mating uh, opportunity in front of you, um, it could be the case that you have systems that assess the person in terms of you know, how attractive they are, are they a good mate, and so forth. And then that down regulates 
and kind of mutes any type of disgust that would otherwise uh, be present. But that said, you know, it's, you typically, in the course of, I can't, I mean, sure, you can read about it, but I'll say this anyway. But in the course of, you know, becoming intimate with someone, you typically do behaviors that sample their pathogens initially. It's not typically like all out like sex immediately. So the whole idea of kissing or touching or getting close to in close proximity serves to start initially sampling pathogens of another individual. And so, yeah. Uh, and so I don't think we're doing this obviously consciously, but we are in a sense kind of smelling and tasting. Yeah, you find someone attractive, you get a little closer, take a whiff, and then never mind. So it goes. And so, so there, but there are ways. So the system, I think, is sensitive to potential pathogens. I actually put perfume on for this video. I actually don't <laughs> wear deodorant, and my armpits always smell fantastic. Um, Musky, it's huh? just, uh, I am, uh, I, it's a weird superpower of mine. Um, <laughs> you shouldn't so. waste it on, uh, online. That's too bad you have to go virtual. Well, now, now that now that comedians are scrambling for uh, for how do I uh, how does a person that made ninety five percent of their income off of live entertainment touring uh, make money? I'm gonna I'm gonna have to start. Maybe I'm gonna have to start uh, getting some swabs of my of my odors to mail out to uh, lucky fans. Um, but let me finish. So what I was just oh, sorry. To finish my little sentiment was just that you know. We talked about, so if disgust regulates what we eat and what we touch, it also regulates who we have sex with. And yeah. that we have a whole bunch of you know, factors about mate choice and, and attractiveness and kinship uh, that factor into uh, our system that determine how attractive and you know, sexually viable another person might be. And if they're deemed not to be uh, a good mate, they're a close relative or they're mm. not very attractive to you, for instance, then we feel a sense of sexual disgust when, when those motivations kick in. Um, otherwise, you know, you're given the green and, and you know, arousal can certainly lead you to pursue them. But arousal and disgust tend to be opposite ends of a spectrum. Yeah, one um, trick. Yeah. One trick you can you can sort of mentally, or I guess you can go through this in real life to see how these things work along this spectrum, is um, you know think about kissing someone you're very attracted to, and you are perfectly fine with that exchange of saliva because you're in a mating opportunity, and so that disgust sort of dial has been turned down. But then one of the examples we think of in the book is then okay now picture that same person. And you're, you have sort of have your head back and your mouth open like a baby bird. And they just dribble their spit right down into your mouth. The yeah. same amount that you would exchange if you were kissing. But when it's not in a mating context, right? All yeah. of a sudden, now that's gross, right? Not <laughs> worth the pathogen risk at that point. But if it's in pursuit of a mating opportunity, okay, we'll turn it down. Yeah, we'll make the exception here. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane that I can even... If I were to, if I were to <laughs> lean back and spit straight up and then catch it back in my mouth, uh, people would be people would be revolted by that right now. But I'm swallowing my own <laughs> spit all of the time, all day long. Well, this is I have a very this is a very academic story for you. When I was in the fourth grade, uh, my friend Casey <laughs> Floyd 
and I, we used to swing on, on swings every, every recess. And uh, we would talk about video games and everything else. And then one day, uh, when I was at the apex of my swing and Casey was in the back, I, I turned my head and I sat. And, and as he swung with his mouth <laughs> open, my saliva went into his mouth. Uh, oh, wow. and that, yes. and that friendship has never been the same since, uh, we've never, I mean, we never, I don't even know where Katie is today. I mean, fourth grade was a long time ago. Uh, but even since that day, it just things things were never quite right between Katie and I. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty solid move though. I can see as a fourth grader, if you land that perfect bullseye <laughs> like that, I mean, uh, you're a legend on the playground. So. Um, question for both of you before we get into um, how, how all of this then leads into how, how we build and then interpret and use laws. Um, what, would you, in, in terms of that dial, that, that discussed dial, would you say that um, if you prime the, um, the disgust or, or contagion or disease avoidance system by, say, um, putting um, pandemic uh, updates on the news day in and, and, and day out, which, which you should do and be aware. Would you say that that would um, lower uh, sex drive in, in, in the average individual if you're, if you're just priming disgust more generally? Basically, I'm wondering if, if now that we're all quarantined, are people going to start having more or less sex if you had to <laughs> It depends who they're quarantined with, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you tell us you're hunkered down with mom and dad? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, maybe I'm just, uh, I don't think uh, this maybe. is really going to affect very much by way of sexual desire. Um, I, I, I don't. Bet MGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 Moneyline wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA, and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. So I think that while we're talking about disgust as it functions in three very different ways... Some of the variables that feed into our assessment of whether something is good to eat also factor into our assessment of whether something is good to touch. I don't think that many of those variables, you know, feed into, is this a, you know, suitable sexual partner? So kinship, for instance, very much factors into, you know, is this person suitable to touch? But there it says, yeah, this person is worth tending to and touching and making sure they're okay. But in the sexual realm, it's saying, yeah, no, back away, you know, very bad as a mate. 
And so the idea that these are somewhat separable systems that all share the same motivational output of aversion and avoidance, um, it, there, might, there might be some carryover, some bleed over, but I don't think it's going to affect arousal uh, as substantially as maybe others think. Carlton, what about you? Yeah, I agree. Of course, that all goes out the window when um, my wife starts dry coughing uh, and showing act actual proximate signs of, of perhaps, uh, you know, having the disease. But, um, but in general, yeah, I mean, I guess that's an empirical question, and I could guess on it, but my guess would be sort of the same as, as, as Dev's. Hmm. Well, let's get those surveys out to people and, and uh, uh, get people doing it. What, what are those things that you guys call the Turkish? Uh, the M-Turks. Um, I'm not a scientist. The Turkers. Should be, you should Turkers. be impressed I was that close. Um, <laughs> doing the M-Turks. So, um, so, so, Carlton, how, does, uh, how do these old, evolved systems that – that dung beetles have, that, uh, that, every, uh, that basically everything on earth has, uh, how do these systems then start expressing themselves once, once you get, um, uh, you know, societies together, once, once uh, you get cities together, infrastructures in place, you start, you start getting um, laws in place. How, how does this um, influence things like immigration, the, uh, uh, you know, is, is this just kind of the extended phenotype of, of our in and out group behavior, F FDA um, and regulating what what we're eating and how healthy it is for it. these these pesky public indecency laws um, that that uh, <laughs> that inhibit me from running down the street with my with my clothes off? What, what, how how do how did we decide on these things and how did how did evolution shape how, um, how, how culture became the way it is today? Yeah, so that's the sort of question that I think led Deb and I to write the book. That was our way in, um, was, hey, look, we, we, when you look around, if you were to work backwards, uh, you look around and we see a lot of laws that seem to be based on this kind of logic. What you're doing is grossing me out. Uh, and therefore, I think it's wrong for you to do it. Um, that's the, and, and, and so we sort of wanted to reverse engineer, how did we get there, right? How, how did we get um, all the way up to where that has become uh, a satisfactory and, and uh, notably frequent, uh, you know, reasoning for, for, for stopping people from doing things? Um, and, and it wasn't, I mean, I don't think either of us on our, were set out with a mission to say, all of these behaviors are okay. It was more to interrogate, well, how did we get here? And then maybe uh, let's take a closer look and see if we're okay with this. Are, are we okay with, with, with this being the reasoning? And, and the, so the short answer to your question, the, 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 you know, we, in the book we talk about all these different aspects of law uh, where you can spot this phenomenon going on. But I think the, uh, and, and each one is, you know, special. Um, I mean, it has its own set of, well, context and how did we get here? But there's a common underlying, you know, answer here to get, which is that even though laws are 
these incredibly complicated things that take a high degree of specialization to be able to produce and enforce. Um, and, and they are part of these very large, very complicated institutions. Uh, you know, they're still run and made and maintained by humans. So even if um, often it's dressed up in, in uh, legalese, in uh, sort of Baroque procedures, it's still people that are doing this. So these parts of human nature, um, I mean, it's, I think it is, it's kind of a dream world to expect that they're gonna be fully absent uh, from an institution that's made by humans. Mm. How, how is it, uh, it, you know, there's, there's so many peculiar things that arise from thinking about things in this way, like the idea, um, uh, it's, it's, it's been a bit since I've read the book. I was actually just listening to it uh, again in, in January, a bit of it on, on audio book, Libro.fm, support your local independent bookstore, by the way. Um, offer code, here we are. Um, but I, I, uh, I remember thinking the, one of the things that struck me as just like, uh, so profound, and I, I've thought about it quite a bit ever since, is the idea of now we go, we say, like, this politician disgusts me or something like that, and, and knowing that disgust is related to knowing what we should and should not eat in, in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we aren't eating politicians. Well, it hasn't gotten there yet. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, and so a lot of the ways in which we we use language um, arose from these um, uh, ki kind of this this fancy language stuff this uh, this cortex that comes up with all these great fanciful ideas we're very proud of was was kind of built on top of the the limbic system and more um, more kind of primitive primitive-ish, quote-unquote, framework um, that that it kind of had to, that was the, that scaffolding was already in place. And then our, our kind of bigger ideas of how we interpret things and, and the way in which we language um, uh, these more subjective realities in these kind of, I, I don't know, if, poetic ways or, or me metaphorical ways is what I'm trying to say. Um, can I set can I set Carlton up for um, some examples? Yeah. So um, so the way that we link from disgust into the law is obviously through morality, and that was an interesting little journey. Uh, but yeah. we basically uh, made the argument that if disgust is for deciding what to eat, who to touch, and who to sleep with then how in the world, and it regulates our own personal decisions, how does it get into this third party area where we're, care, we're using it to care about what other people are doing? And the short story is that disgust ends up giving a bit of a flavor to the value we place on other people when they behave as they do. And so seeing people who might eat things that we find novel and therefore not vetted and, 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 you know, perhaps disgusting to us because we're not used to them or because we see people having sex with partners that for us we find distasteful personally or we see people touching things or doing jobs that perhaps bring them into contact with uh, contamin contaminants and so forth. We actually, that causes our, us to value them less 
And so disgust ends up being one of the inputs that affects how we socially value other people. And this idea of social value is really important because it ends up that it's used by yet a whole, it's used by a different universe of mechanisms in our brain that are there really as a, to manage group conflict and cooperation, uh, if you want to put it nicely. But it's, it's really there to assess who is worth engaging in, who, who is part of my tribe, who's a cooperator, a trader, a kinsman, potential mate, and so forth. And we can place value, social value, on all others in our world. And a critical kind of system in our, uh, in our head by virtue of our evolutionary past is that males tend to compete for resources, resources uh, that were valuable in terms of land, um, food, females who are attracted to that land and food, uh, females as well. So the idea that females competed with each other for access to resources and females tend to choose males based on their access to resources and ability to invest those resources in, in, in her and her offspring. And this is true across the whole animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Because males are in competition for resources, they tend to view other males drawing on resources as potential threats. I mean, constant. I'm I'm actually as you're saying all this, I'm I'm like looking at, at Carlton's background, and I'm I'm a I'm a little uh, I'm I'm a little jealous of that light fixture that, uh, that is above him right now. Very impressive. But uh, had, I, I known, I, had I known it was going to be this clear, I would have staged the room better. We actually just uh, moved, uh, and and I'm cabined into. Uh, into my bedroom because my little ones are my wife's trying to keep them occupied in the living room. Uh, yeah. but, you know, had I known it would be this prominent, I would have tried to make you even more jealous. Uh, yeah. No, I, I'm. Uh, I, I mean, it looks like you're. You got like a nice button-down shirt on. And everything. I got. I got this. I have a little cuttlefish on my shirt. Um, it's a button down with shorts, just so you know. It's no proof. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all, all right. All right. I, uh, but uh, uh, but yeah. So so men have men have been competing for resources and 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 potentially mates for some time. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll I'll wrap this up very quickly, which yeah. is just to say, men Take compete for resources. They want to get rid of other groups of men who compete for resources and and other mouths mm-hmm. that draw on them. And so looking for opportunities to do that, I think, is just sadly part of our, our human nature. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not saying that we can't step, step around it, but it's certainly part of our, our human nature. And so um, what you find is that, so who are you going to try to have not draw on your precious resources? Well, obviously, if you're related to me, I want you, you know, I want to make sure that you stick around. And if you're a cooperator and you are a trader, I want to make sure you stick around. But all everyone else who holds low social value, you're not a mate, you don't trade with me, you possibly hold disease from over there, you eat weird food, um, right. I kind of don't need you. And so what you find is that, you know, the world round history or, you know, the tale of history is that men have waged war against other, you know, groups of individuals who potentially are threats against these resources. But disgust can fuel this because it is a big old arrow pointing to who holds low social value to me. And so once disgust gets in that mix, either because people are disgusted sexually or by what people touch or what by people eat uh, and so forth, then you can have uh, disgust fuel these moral bonfires 
to get rid of people, but you don't like even these, have to feel disgusted. These cockroaches or whatever. Uh, through, throughout history, there's been all, the, all of these disgust-related slangs to talk about outgroups as lesser people. That's right, but you don't even have to feel disgust. So once disgust has this link, now you can say, you know, earlier Shane used like, you know, this politician says, you know, Chinese, they're disgusting, or the Chinese virus, or, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. So, so I don't know who's saying that, but. No, you, you, so you might even be able to predict that even today in our modern society, if, say, you were to put a man in charge, he might fill all of his cabinet with, like, his uh, close family and, uh, and, and friends, and then, and then target art outgroups by, uh, by triggering disgust mechanisms and, and saying, like calling viruses uh, <laughs> um, Chinese or, or, or referring to like a potential um, um, competitor that's female as like a nasty woman or something like that. Just, just like a hypothetical uh, speculation. You, you might predict uh, stuff like that might still happen in a modern world. Yes, I, I think that it's happened all throughout history. And so, you know, it's unfortunate, but, but there it goes. And you don't even have to feel disgust. Disgust basically says, here's a group of people I don't value. How about you? Do you value yeah. them? And, you know, the idea of starting the charge and putting out a call for other people who might feel similarly is a way to coordinate a group of people to start targeting their efforts against a particular individual or group. And so disgust has a very nefarious link to morality. And then, you know, taking us to Carlton's expertise, this is often seen in the law. I mean, one of the more funny things that Carlton wrote about was the obscenity laws and the things that you're not allowed to say. Um, I mean, they're all kind of disgust related. And Carlton, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was just going to piggyback off that. But if you were going to, if you had a good pivot there, uh, be my guest. Uh, no, piggyback, and then I have a follow-up question for you. Yes, uh, all I was going to say is what Deb has done is, you know, there's a, the way we get in here is that there is a kind of a two-step process that happens. Disgust feeds into morality, right? So, so there is a, um, you know, there's a sort of shortcut there that happens um, with the way we think uh, to where disgust gets this moral weight attached to it, right? We tend to, um, like Deb said, pick other groups or behaviors or something and say, not only does this gross me out, but it's, it's wrong. And then once that's there, well, now you can mobilize that, right? Because if you want to make a moral argument against the person, uh, against the group, against the behavior, trigger disgust. And maybe the thing's actually disgusting, right? Um, maybe, um, maybe you choose, you say this group, they, look, they cause diseases or they have diseases or whatever uh, but maybe not right you know um wartime genocidal propaganda it's all filled with this imagery uh of of cockroaches and snakes and slugs and you know clearly yeah. isn't true it's a metaphor but nonetheless the things people pick induce disgust yeah so so like say i'm watching a a video um, that that just went uh, viral. That's an interesting word for internet thing too. But um, of of a of a woman like going to a Dollar Tree and hoarding um, like ninety boxes of 
of toilet paper and filling up two trucks truckloads of toilet paper i i might say like this woman makes me sick even though i'm nowhere near her um uh, you know she's not uh, she's not a uh, actual like contagion threat but it, but it's this is a metaphor um uh, that i'm i'm now using and and what how much of this how much of this is then like a feedback loop of, of you go like oh i don't i don't agree with that thing of like uh hoarding or or stealing or something like that that doesn't um you know uh, doesn't make you nauseous but then your stomach does kind of get a little bit upset um uh, too no, that, you know, that's, like, i mean that could happen for sure but really what you're doing is i mean listen in south florida the drivers are just insane and so the idea is like you know you see someone do something i, I don't know cut across five lanes and you're like that's just disgusting uh you know or you see like you said the hoarders you know it's disgusting behavior it makes me sick you know yeah. But what you're really doing, I mean, ancestrally, when you had these thoughts or you said these things, they were actually in public, right? So the idea that you say things and they're private and no one can hear you is a really weird situation for a, you know, a hunter-gatherer. But what you're really doing is saying, that's disgusting, that's gross. And imagine if you then had five people around you be like, yeah, that's gross. Let's get her. Right. And so the idea yeah. that, you know, disgust coordinates and it's, you know, you'd have that, you'd share that look of, you know, we should say something, we should stop this. But it's yeah. really a, a fishing line. You're taking other people's temperature about, you know, do you find this of low social value? And if you do, then we can coordinate together to target this person and condemn them, exploit them, prevent them from imposing any of these costs, taking our stuff, taking our toilet paper, uh, and, and, and so forth. And so, um, so disgust can be quite dangerous in that sense. Um, and it would be, it'd be very different if you said that's disgusting. And the person next to you was like, that's my mom. <laughs> and so yeah, that would be yeah. a very different kind of environment to be in. And, but disgust, disgust is dangerous, especially in these times. Right. So Carlton, how much of this, you made the important point earlier that, that, uh, I find we often have to make with evolutionary psychology where you have to, you know, people that aren't familiar with it are like, are you saying that, that this is supposed to be this way or this is us justifying actions? And, and it's, it's more just about how things have been in the past, not necessarily the way they, they should be. And, and a lot of this is trying to understand where these, uh, where some of these actions and preferences and judgments come from so that we can, it, the more mindful of this we are, the, the more, uh, the better that we can, um, that we can make decisions and, and much in the way that there's, you know, I, I remember Boston was, I started comedy in Boston and Boston, I think still has some law in the books that like you have to, you have to have like a musket when going through Boston Common or something like that legally because there was like still bears and stuff around back when they like made that law. And, and just like before people understood germs, um, doctors would go like right from surgery into like delivering a baby and they'd be covered in all sorts of blood and guts. And it was like this sign of pride, like, look how hard I'm working around <laughs> here. And, uh, and, and, and as, uh, you know, were, were these, terrific uh humans have this 
this uh, intelligence stuff we're very proud of. We, we're, we're these great tool makers, and, and the scientific method is, is in my opinion, one of the single greatest tools that uh, that that humans have ever developed. Um, do you think that as we start being able to be like, look, the reason why we have this law against, say, homosexuality or something like that is because of these, like, this very outdated software that is really no longer applicable to our modern lives. Do you, do you think that as that understanding, which this is still very, very new and mostly unknown to almost everybody, but, but do you think if, uh, you know, in your ideal world, everyone on earth reads the book Objection, do you think that would give people the opportunity to kind of reassess um, some of these laws and, and create um, a, 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 a moral and legal landscape that is a little more up-to-date with our modern conditions and, and more free from our um, more unnecessary evolved instincts? Why, yes, Shane. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think they would, and they can start by picking out a copy on Amazon today or their local bookseller. Um, no, well... Which, by the way, people are still going to bookstores right now, which I'm like, just like thumbing through the pages and, and putting it back on the shelf. I'm like, like, you know you can get audiobooks and books online and stuff, but anyway. Well, that's, that's the hope. Um, that's why we wrote the book. Uh, it's, it's not quite that easy. So, so let's say in a, in a perfect world, um, everybody read the book. Uh, our most prominent legal scholars and legislators and judges read the book. Uh, it's and the new Bible. Like, precisely, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and they said, okay, well, I do have a better understanding of this stuff. Uh, let's rethink it. Well, I, we haven't made an argument in the book uh, that that framework should then be replaced with something. So, for example, you know, if you look at um, if you look at obscenity law, what words you know you can or you can't say, um, and these have long been backed by by um, the, the idea that we can. Uh, there's this underlying assumption that if something is morally um, bad it's wrong if it offends us that uh, it's okay to prohibit and then when we sort of look backwards well it turns out that in this instance the things that uh, run afoul of morality are actually words that refer to things that disgust us right um, it, it's not necessarily there are worse things if you ask me out there like racial slurs um, uh, you know, that do more actual psychological harm, but these are the ones that have been in there. And, and, you know, when I look at something like that, I think this, this, we need a more coherent framework, right? Perhaps how much harm are we doing? I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of options out there. Uh, but all we said is, let's take a closer look. We want to highlight, here are the things that we've prohibited because they run afoul of our biology. They um, pose some sort of evolutionary threat, and they're, they've just kind of been shepherded in, even though maybe they've sort of outlived their usefulness. Um, we're now in a position where we can be philosophers instead of just relying on our biology about, about what's right and wrong. So we wanted to lay that bare so we can take a closer look, but we haven't necessarily said, okay, but now here's what you replace it with, 
Uh, here are the words you can't say. Here are the sexual relationships that are okay and aren't okay. Uh, and that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a question next. It's a big question. Um, you know, it's something that I think moral philosophers, you know, uh, society as a whole depends on how we want to make our decisions, but we have to make that next step. But I think for us, it just, it wasn't good enough that we just fell back on this idea of, of, well, this grosses me out with dogs. The dog stuff, the, the festival of dogs. I just love oh, that. Yeah, it's so yeah. great. And you did hear him say at the beginning that he's like, he read the first two chapters and he's like, I got to talk to these people. And then he ends up with me. Whereas you wrote the first two chapters. Like he's not, he doesn't know what he's getting. Yeah. Yes. The world would be a better place if everyone bought and read our book. Of um, uh, and, and that I do think, so what I do think it will do is it sort of gives an explanation for why a lot of the things that disgust us end up being prohibited by law so that we can go back and look. It doesn't necessarily give, a, um, not even necessarily, it doesn't give a replacement model. So for, okay, when we're talking about bad words or when we're talking about sexual relationships, give these things, um, you know, now here are the things we should allow and shouldn't. It doesn't give that, but what it does do is it gives an explanation so that, you know, the real thinkers out there um, can get together and say, okay, well, given that, what now? Um, so there's this other thing, uh, there's this other complication, which is that change in the law uh, happens slowly. Um, a lot of the time, the, the famous jurist, Benjamin Cardozo, has this quote that justice is not to be taken by storm, she is to be wooed by slow advances. Uh, and the idea is that um, even if even if maybe our, our laws aren't on the firmest, uh, you know, framework, people base their decisions and their lives around those. They make, uh, you know, they have sort of notice of what they can be punished for and can't be punished for. And so even when you say, okay, we've changed our mind, well, you still, you tend to change those things incrementally and slowly so that people can adjust their uh, affairs accordingly. I mean, that's, that's not, always, but that's a sort of general idea. So even if we were to totally dispatch with this idea that disgust is enough, um, you know, we still have to replace it with something else um, in a coherent fashion, I would hope. Uh, and then you'd have to implement that change in a way that was responsible so that you weren't just sort of overhauling things without, uh, without notice. Uh, scientists always so very careful to not be prescriptive in any way. Very responsible science. Um, all right, so I, I have a question for, um, for both of you, um, whoever wants to take this. Uh, when, when kind of we talk about the, the roots of something like disgust and then how it's expressed now and uh, uh, modern world and how, how it eventually turns into all of these metaphors, um, are there, what, uh, does that have anything to say about how, um, how we view other things differently rather than like, uh, I mean, I think it's easy to understand that you can then be like, hey, there's a Chinese virus and this is a way of 
uh, attacking an outgroup or or the different people. Uh, you know, we've we've seen that old trick through all of humanity. But what about ideas themselves um, being judged as as something that is in group or out group and um, the thing, things like political beliefs and saying like, well, if you're on this side of this fence or this side of that fence, you're, you're a bad or a good or morally virtuous, virtuous person. I think disgust can be leveraged anywhere, anyhow, uh, people, acts, ideas. And so you find that happening all over the place. So you can, you know, I'm, Republicans can think Democrats are disgusting and, you know, liberals can think conservatives are disgusting. And I think that disgust is really a way to mobilize one's troop to, to attack the other, the other troop. Uh, so it's just really a way of, of, you know, assaying who's with me, how strong are we, you know, do we have the, the force in order to go after them and, and so forth. And, you know, do people agree with what I'm saying? Um, and so, yeah, Paul Bloom has this wonderful quote uh, in a New Yorker article he wrote. That's it's something I'm going to paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of, um, you know, white supremacists uh, use disgust when they talk about all these other groups. And then the rest of us use disgust when we talk about white supremacists. Right. Right. So. I, I'm curious as we uh, as we start wrapping up um i i would i'd love to hear about and and i don't have any uh i don't have any time constraint um i i have all of the spotty internet time in the world but i don't want to keep you guys too long how um how how do you uh, people like yourselves or or, or what I'm trying to say is how does your point of view and uh, as having spent so much time um, thinking and talking and writing about this subject, how does that influence your perception of things that are going on now? Do you have, do you have kind of some unique takes um, uh, based on your background that, um, uh, that are influencing how you're interpreting this, this, uh, pandemic well, go ahead, sure um, so as someone interested in disgust and morality obviously I've noticed the uptick in hygiene behaviors but also how people view other people there was a, a video that I was forwarded maybe you guys saw it I don't know where it was on Facebook or something where people are at a bus stop and a woman sneezes and then like people pull out their aerosol spray cans and you know, like, and then one man pulls out his gun and kills her. Whoa. Just go back to kind of business as usual waiting for the bus. And so it's obviously acted out. And so what the point is, is that, um, and I thought, so everyone's laughing at that, but to me, that is exactly uh, what I am so nervous about that thin veil of uh, life is good, we're all protected by laws and things like this. Uh, but as soon as disgust gets hold, um, mm -hmm. you know, so you had in that video exactly what I'm nervous about. The cleaning behaviors don't concern me. It is the, you know, the fact that people found it funny that then they were shocked. You know, it was funny, but it was, it was it's not funny at the same time because mm -hmm. it means that, you know, getting rid of people who disgust us 
and, you know, extermination, killing and, you know, exploitation and jail and fining and um, all these things are, are, are things that are just so, you know, disgust and morality go hand in hand. And so, you know, it wasn't that, you know, everyone laughed at that guy who saw that video likely, you know, it, it, and so no one condemns the guy who does that. And so the idea that now you have this kind of sanctioned killing of things that are disgusting. I know it was a video, but I'm just making the point that right. uh, we, we naturally find these things funny. And that's mm -hmm. what concerns me because right now where everyone's disgust is at an all time high uh, globally, it's, I'm very nervous about any, you know, any idiot that puts on that fire some type of moral uh, meme about another group, about how it's due to another group, or there's another group associated with disgust. Yeah, that, 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 that horrifies me. Um, you know, I think that the lessons from the Holocaust and, you know, what's going on today, you have Rohingya Muslims and homosexuals are still being, um, you know, strung up. And so the idea that we would go after other people uh, because of the disgust associated um, with the vi this virus, it just, it concerns me. So it also concerns me, obviously, the hoarding of food, but I think that will hopefully lessen um, and I'd prefer that than the moral outrage. Um, and so, yeah, it, yeah. it concerns me. I, so I am, I am concerned. I'm less concerned when I stay home and I just work um, mm -hmm. because then I don't have to worry about the outside world. Um, but, but things discuss that keeps us clear of disease and personal decisions to keep ourselves healthy um, and to guide decisions, you know, about, what to eat and what to touch and whether to have sex right now, I think is all very, very sane and healthy and rational and disgust is rational in those, in those ways. Uh, but as soon as it starts to go to, you know, who we should therefore target and condemn, we have to be very careful of that slippery slope um, because it's, it's, it's there and it's dangerous. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think um, that is probably better at seeing through the matrix than I am. Um, you know, sometimes I do the same thing, right? Where I, I, I watch other people's behavior and I, I see the lines of code, right? That was the, that was sort of why I sought out evolutionary psychology. Cause I was like, Oh, here's sort of where the answers are. Um, this can tell us a lot of things. And, and sometimes when you see this, you can see exactly what's going on. And then there are other times though, when I'm just in it, uh, and, and I, I don't have, you know, I catch myself doing the same thing. I live in a neighborhood with a lot of families. Uh, we walk around, there's like a sort of open area that's like a grassy area on a lake that you can walk, walk around, uh, but there's a gate to get in and out. Um, and, and when I see people like touching the gate, uh, you know, my first instinct is to be like, oh, you know, uh, how dare you? Um, you're a terrible person uh, for doing it. You're ruining it for everybody else. And so this is, you know, exactly the type of thing that I understand why it happens and um and why my instinct would be that way and how dangerous it is uh and yeah human yeah. nature is just so strong that i see it and that's my that's my first uh that's my first reaction yeah i mean i i don't uh this is a this is a a bit of a cartoonish exaggeration for um for comic relief but it, it was i noticed it more than i ever would have where i was i had a uh very nerve-wracking yet pleasant four-day drive to get from LA to Wisconsin because it was like it was 
it was a, a lot more beautiful than they than they um you know portrayed the apocalypse being um uh in the movies and stuff so the roads were clear the weather was nice and everything and uh and i hated that i had to i i was worried gas stations were gonna shut down i didn't i didn't know what and then you know i'm sanitizing everywhere and and you know having to touch gas pumps and stuff like that and i remember going into a convenience store and the cashier like hiccuped and i was like oh uh, like just for a second i was like okay i don't i don't think it passes through hiccups like i think i'm okay but it's funny because i'm like i'm not a uh you know i i don't uh i'm i'm usually a pretty uh a pretty uh fearless uh, even keel individual and and uh and so something like that's setting me off i think uh, i think a lot of people are are really going to be on edge and once people are are on, on edge man it does it makes me nervous um so do you uh i guess in uh in closing usually on my podcast um i have i have my guests um uh plug a a non-profit each week but for these special episodes and you're welcome to do that as well but for these special episodes i i just think that um you know this is an opportunity for people to take stock and um and their uh, what they know and what is worth knowing and uh i i mean i think that this is an opportunity where people are for the first time in my life being like hey maybe science has <laughs> has some value in our world and can maybe help our lives. And I think that it, it can do a whole lot more than, than, uh, than help us in a, in a pandemic. There's a, there's a million other issues. And, and so, but I mean, it's a good start that all of a sudden people are like, well, can scientists fix this problem? Um, and so, so now that I, I think that people are maybe just starting to um, wake up to that this is one important and then hopefully once they start learning a little bit about science they'll be like oh wow and this is really really interesting and fascinating and um, you know I, I hope that people have the privilege of having science change their their life and perception in the way that it has mine I can be a little evangelical sometimes but how if people do want to be better engaged in um, in in the sciences do you have any advice for where people uh, how people could get um, started and, and how people like what what people could do to um, increase public engagement and um, and kind of spread the right kinds of information I have a simple one and an accessible one, which is just to click on the science pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post and the other sort of major outlets yeah. that do good science writing. I mean, a lot of times, I, I think they're very good at picking up on <laughs> my three-year-old jelly in the background. I think they're very good about picking up on the big studies that come out on major journals and making them accessible. And that's, to me, that's always a good entry point uh, because you do that and then if you're feeling hardcore uh, and you want to brew a pot of coffee and you want to go pick out the actual journal article and, and have a go at that, it's there for you. Um, but it gives you, it gives you a, nice, a nice way in and, and I think by and large, um, those newspapers do a great job of stuff accessible. Yeah, awesome. no, I agree. I mean, I think there's some great general science writers out there 
refreshing. Um, like, you know, you've got <laughs> folks back. introducing like psychology and human nature. Um, Steve Pinker is fantastic. And Matt Ridley has written a, a fantastic series of books. But with respect to uh, infectious disease, um, Paul Ewald is, has written uh, some, some great books on the evolution of infectious disease that might be, you know, relevant right now. And he's fantastic. Great. Well, uh, thank you guys for joining me in, um, in such bizarre circumstances. Um, I, I think uh, I, I, my, my little silver lining um, uh, about all this is I, I think that uh, conversations like this and work like yours is, is going to only become more and more relevant. Um, in the public and there's going to be more of a demand for it and um, and so I really appreciate you both giving me your time and I encourage everyone to look at this uh, you're not going to be lucky enough to have had Deborah sign it um, <laughs> but, and, and, and I'll, I'll make sure next time I'm in Miami um, I'll, I'll have you sign this for me, Carlton. But make sure and uh, make sure and check out their book, Objection. Thank you, Devin Carlton, for joining me. Thanks for having. Thanks very much. Good to see you. And uh, yeah, I'll uh, hope to see you guys again um, next time I'm in Miami when we can all travel and do things like that again. Look forward to it. <laughs> all right. You. Thanks, awesome, Shane. guys. Thank you so much. Hey guys, tune in on the next podcast. I don't know what the exact topic will be, but it will be another uh, pandemic, special pandemic episode. It'll be coming out very soon. Uh, no, no more one podcast a week while this is happening. During this uh, emergency situation, I'm pushing myself to do all that I can to get as much information out there to you guys. So... Um, uh, so uh, we'll see how, how fast I can crank these things out, but I am doing everything that I can. Uh, I'm working very, very long days and I am exhausted, but I'm, I'm excited to, uh, be doing something that makes me feel like a, a part of, of doing something good and promoting cool research and thought leaders and getting the word out to the public that um, that they need. So um, thanks for the su supporting the show. And uh, if you wanna if you wanna write a positive review or um, check out my documentary Psychonautics: A Comics Exploration of Psychedelics, um, check out some of my old stand-up, uh, my albums. I have a special mating seasons and just anything like that. Um, that you want to do to increase any any views and likes and positive comments and things like that um, would would uh, really make my day and um, I, I know a lot of you are kind of have a little more downtime to do that than normal so that's something free that you can do to help um, me out and help out all the artists that you you follow and enjoy uh, you know one one nice little YouTube comment or something like that can can really make our day so um so the the time it takes to do that really makes an impact on the the amount of content that you get out because that inspires us to try harder so um i really appreciate you guys and uh stay safe out there 
and I hope you're all well in body, spirit, and mind, and as well as you can be. And those of you that listen all the way to my, uh, all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Stop it, stop it. A, podca- <clears throat> A podcast network.